The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. It's always nice to be here. I don't know about you, but I've been thinking a lot about loss this year. And so the title of my talk tonight is Loss Without Blame. Here's a favorite poem of Mary Oliver entitled In Blackwater Woods. Look, the trees are turning their own bodies into pillars of light, are giving off the rich fragrance of cinnamon and fulfillment. The long tapers of cattails are bursting and floating away over the blue shoulders of the ponds And every pond, no matter what its name is, is nameless now. Every year, everything I have learned in my lifetime leads back to this. The fires and the black river of loss, whose other side is salvation. Whose meaning none of us will ever know. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it, and when the time comes, to let it go. To let it go. How much time do you estimate that you spend during a normal day or week looking for things that you have lost or trying to remember the name of someone who has just arisen in your memory or trying to remember why you went into a certain room in your house or apartment to get something. What am I doing in here and why did I come in here? Depending, of course, on your age, this experience is more or less familiar and might be a significant part of many of your days. If you're around my age, you know what I'm talking about. If you're younger, listen carefully so you can prepare for what's inevitably to come. If you inhaled back in the day as I did, we might think we have an excuse But that excuse does not explain the universality of losing an object, such as our car keys. Even though we're absolutely certain we put them in their usual place by the front door or losing a train of thought while waiting for another to finish speaking. Or getting up from your desk and going into the kitchen, for example, and then asking yourself, why am I in here? Aging is certainly a factor in these experiences. Lack of mindfulness is a factor. But again, even focused efforts to remember during the course of a busy workday, in my experience, is not a guarantee of avoiding this human experience. It's probably the reason I read a very interesting article entitled Losing Streak. Reflections on Two Seasons of Loss in the February 13th and 20th issue of The New Yorker. I highly recommend it to you. It's written by Catherine Schultz, a staff writer who 
won last year's Pulitzer Prize for feature writing. She begins the article writing about an experience of an unusual experience of losing things. She decided to spend August outside of New York City because it was so sweltering and hot, and she came to Portland. And the house that she was sitting in uh, came with a truck and a bicycle. So on her first day in town, she left the truck's keys on the corner of the counter in a coffee shop, and the next day left the house keys in the front door. The following day, she wrote that she left her sweater at a cafe, and when she returned to claim it, she found that she had also left her wallet at the cafe. And previously, she had never lost her wallet in her life. And that same day, she bought a lock for the bicycle, and she again left her wallet next to the cash register. And after returning to the store to get the wallet, she came back home and promptly lost the bike lock when she just had opened it, but the phone rang, and she went to answer the phone, and when she came back, she couldn't find the bike lock anywhere. And unfortunately, she had planned to ride the bike, if you've ever been to Portland, down to wonderful Powell's bookstore so that she could uh, go, on a go to a talk, but she couldn't find the bike lock, so she was forced to drive the truck instead. And after the talk, she browsed around in Powell's for a while, and she lost the truck. She couldn't find it anywhere. And about that place in the article, I remembered, I was immediately reminded of my trip to uh, France and Switzerland with my wife, Dana Curtis, who's also a mediator and a lawyer. We were going to speak at the Swiss Federation of Mediators in Basel. And we flew into Geneva, a long flight from here on the west coast all the way across the country and into Geneva and rented a car and then drove back into France because we were going to end up in Switzerland to give our talks. And we drove to a town that we had visited before along Lac d'Annecy. The name of the town is Annecy. We were going to have dinner there and then go on to our hotel in another town and I parked the rental car in a parking lot, and I pride myself. Oh, boy, do I pride myself on having such an impeccable sense of direction and never losing a car. I had never lost a car before. And one of the ways I do that in a strange city is that when I'm walking away from the car and I come to an intersection, I turn and I look behind so that I have a picture in my mind of the way the intersection will look when I'm coming back the other way. And I did that, that evening. And after wandering around the town for a while and having dinner, it started to rain really hard. And this was last spring, so uh, we were not very used to rain. We wondered at first what it was. It had been so long. And it was really raining hard. And so I uh, 
put Dana in a pizza place where she would be out of the rain so at least one of us would be dry, I proceeded to spend the next three or four or five, maybe it was six, I don't know. It was a long time looking for this car. I ensured that we would be very late to our hotel and late on our way to the Airbnb we had rented for our stay in Provence. It was not a fun time, and I didn't see a police car anywhere. I had an exact picture in my head about where this car was parked. It was near in, in a parking lot that I could see and remember, and it was across the street, and I was certain that it was that way. And I returned to Dana several times over the course of the three hours. And, of course, she gave me the advice of trying to get some help or (laughs) maybe it's that way. And I said, no, it is definitely that way. And we had reached the point that we were thinking of renting a hotel room, even though we wouldn't have our luggage or anything, uh, because it was getting so late and it was raining so hard, and we wandered into a subway shop. You know, subways are everywhere now. And there was a young couple in there, and finally Dana prevailed upon me to ask for help, something that was particularly hard for me to do. They spoke good English, thankfully. And they told me about a parking lot that was that way. And out of desperation, being absolutely certain and having no doubt that this was a failed journey, we walked to the parking lot where, surprisingly, my car, our car was parked. You may have had similar experiences. I heard some of you laughing knowingly. So... You know what that feels like. Yes. <laughs> Except our phones didn't work because we had just landed in Europe and we hadn't gotten them transferred over to work on European systems yet. And in this New Yorker article, Ms. Schultz writes about contacting her sister, who was a cognitive scientist at MIT thinking that her sister would be more conversant than the rest of us about how the mind works and why we lose things. And her sister, according to Ms. Schultz, is the classic absent-minded professor, was not at all sympathetic, and she simply told Ms. Schultz to call her again once the DMV knew her by name. She would then give her a little help. And we can certainly find lots of help on the internet and self-help books about finding what is lost in our lives because the experience is so pervasive. Ms. Schultz writes, listen to this now, data from one insurance company survey, now it doesn't surprise me that insurance companies would survey lost objects because I'm sure they get lots of claims for things having been stolen or whatever. One insurance company survey suggests that the average person, are you an average person, 
loses up, misplaces up to nine objects a day, which means by the time we turn 60, we will have lost up to 200,000 things. These figures seem preposterous until you reflect on all the times you holler up the stairs or down the stairs to ask your partner if he's seen your jacket or how often you search the couch cushions for the pen you were just using are almost the daily flurry of walking out of the house and coming back in because you can't find something or you forgot something. And she continues that, granted, we'll find most of those things, but we'll never get back the time we spent looking for them. And in the course of our life, this article goes on to say that we'll spend roughly six solid months looking for missing objects on average. So if you're an average person, six months out of your life, if this is a more common feature, good luck. And here in the United States, that translates to collectively some 54 million hours spent searching every day. And there's the associated loss of money. In the U.S. in 2011, hold on, $30 billion on misplaced cell phones alone. We lose things. And what, writes Ms. Schultz, is the explanation? Two reasons, one scientific and one psychoanalytic. Both, she says, are unsatisfying. The scientific one is that we lose things as a result of our failure to recollect, recollect or pay attention. Either we can't retrieve the memory where we put something, or we never formed the memory in the first place. A failure of what we would call mindfulness. The psychoanalytic explanation is based on Freud in his psychopathology of everyday life. And he describes losing something as a success, a deliberate sabotage of our rational mind by our subliminal desires. Because, as Freud asserted, we never lose anything that we highly value. Now, that's certainly not true for me, and I suspect it's not true for you. So Freud's theory doesn't seem to hold up. And as that rental car experience in Lockdown Sea was for me, I subscribe to a meditative version of the scientific theory, won't surprise you, but even while I continued to castigate myself for my stupidity and carelessness, which was, of course, a complete failure of mind mindfulness. And it never occurred to me that I somehow subliminally didn't value the car and I wanted to get rid of it and be out in the rain wandering around a strange city in the dark rather than being in a cozy, tiny French hotel room. Sound familiar? As a meditator, the loss of my mindfulness in that situation is makes much more sense. But the self-criticism 
that I op that experience opened me up to implicitly underlies the Freudian approach and helps make it a self-fulfilling prophecy, i.e., the more I tear myself down, the more I undermine my own self-confidence in stressful situations, the more likely I am to fail and lose my mindfulness, as I was in the midst of proving. So as we attack ourselves for our carelessness or our forgetfulness, as we berate ourselves for not paying better attention or being more mindful, we actually undermine the mindfulness that we're working so hard to establish. Hmm. And I kept telling myself as I wandered in the rain, embarrassed, frustrated, concerned about Dana and her reaction to my mindlessness, that this self-denigration obviously makes it impossible for us to gain insight into the ideas about the self named Daniel. The ideas that are required for mindfulness to take root and mindfulness that would allegedly improve Daniel's memory. Kind of a circular trap that we put ourselves in. The more we criticize ourselves, the less mindfulness we have, the less mindfulness we have, the more we tend to lose things and lose our thoughts. And the more we criticize ourselves and around the rabbit hole we go. Does that sound familiar to you? The Buddha taught us praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute are the eight worldly winds. They ceaselessly change. As a mountain is unshaken by the wind, so the heart of a wise person is unmoved by all the changes on this earth. Buffalo feed on buffalo grass that is fertilized by their own droppings. And this particular grass has deep roots in the earth and it's highly resistant to drought. I make mistakes, we all do. I forget on a rainy night in a French town where I left a rental car, at least. But fortunately, I got to eat what grew from my own droppings, my own mistakes, the arrogance of assuming that it couldn't happen to me, the arrogance of refusing for way too long to listen to my wife tell me Try in the other direction, Daniel. The arrogance of failing to notice how far from mindfulness I had wandered and how caught I was in my own self-rejection fear. And I imagine that this place sounds familiar to at least some of you. I know that I'm not alone in visiting it. So what do we do? Catherine Schultz says that the verb to lose has its ancient etymological root in the word for sorrow. It is rated to lorn 
in forlorn. It comes from an old English word meaning to perish, which comes from a still more ancient word meaning to separate or cut apart. The modern sense of misplacing an object didn't appear until the 13th century. And a hundred years after that, we lose acquired the meaning of failing to win. In the 16th century, we begin to lose our minds. In the 17th century, our hearts. The circle of what we can lose, in other words, began with our own lives and then widened out steadily ever since. And today, it's a supremely awkward category bulging with everything from mittens to our life savings to loved ones, forcing us into all kinds of relationships with wildly dissimilar experiences. And yet, if anything, our problem is not that we put too many things into the category of loss, but that we leave too many out. I had lost much more than the rental car. I had lost my connection with myself, with my wife, Dana, with the space of the world around me, with my centeredness, and most of all, with my connection with life. In that experience of lostness, the self-criticism the anger, perhaps, the confusion of mind that we create and churn increases that circle of loss all around us. And like the buffalo, we are all nourished by what sprouts from our broken trail, our own droppings. What we trample and leave behind fertilizes the way we walk. We're not exempt from this experience. You may remember when I was down here last year, I gave some talks from Mark Nepo's book, 7,000 Ways to Listen, Staying Close to What is Sacred. It's a great book. I recommend it to you. And in that book, he writes, I have lost so many, have lost so much, and each has been a breaking away a letting go, the way clumps of earth that hold the river are worn free by the river. So the river of experience scours the small container that is our life deeper and deeper. But we resist this idea of losing, just as I resisted losing the rental car. But even more, I resisted the very idea that I could, in fact, lose something that big, especially under those circumstances. I resisted the idea of what is, the, what is losing something like this mean about Daniel, about Daniel himself, and all the attributes that I ascribe to myself that I want to believe are true about myself. Again from Mark Nepo. Help me resist the urge 
to dispute whether things are true or false, which is like arguing whether it is day or night. Help me to resist the urge to dispute whether things are true or false, which is like arguing whether it is day or night. It is always one or the other somewhere in the world. Together we can penetrate a higher truth which, like the sun, is always being conveyed. What if mindfulness is not something that we practice to still our minds, but is instead a space, a mysterious atmosphere in which we can live? I had certainly lost that space, that knowing, as I wandered around locked Annecy. Even though I kept reminding myself of this knowing, I kept telling myself to relax and breathe, to pay attention, to follow your breath, etc. Obviously with no success. I could not regain my confidence. I was lost in the very surface of my being. Lost in kind of a dualistic oppositional thinking in which I was pushing against life and life was consequently pushing back against me to wake up. And I had no memory of my favorite verse from the verses on the faith mind by Sin Stang, the third Zen patriarch, which goes like this. For the unified mind, which mine was clearly not, for the unified mind in accord with the way, all self-centered striving ceases, of which I was in the middle of an incredibly self-centered striving to prove that the car was indeed that way, the way I remembered it. Doubts and irresolutions vanish and life in true faith is possible. To come directly into harmony with this reality, simply say when doubt arises, not to, T-W-O, not to. In this not to, nothing is separate, nothing is excluded. No matter when or where, enlightenment means entering this truth. I could not have been further from not to as I wandered the streets of Lockdonacy. I was disconnected from myself. I was disconnected from life. I was disconnected from Dana and stubbornly continued to wander. Have you been there? And underneath that stubbornness, I had lost a deep understanding of the very paradoxical nature of life, a fundamental knowing about the way life is. Life is not either or, as our minds want it to be. I am not either the person who never loses anything and never loses his way, nor am I the person who always loses things and always loses his way. I am both. Both and. Not two. 
And so are you. In those places in your life where you struggle, where you're lost, where you can't find your way, where you resist and can't find mindfulness, where you cut yourself off from your own heart and from others, and where you feel lost and that something is lost. That's the very place where you need to find the way to say not to. I had forgotten that only when I am rooted in mindfulness am I clear and strong enough to notice the forces of life plucking at my heart and mind and sometimes making sweet and sometimes making discordant music. When we listen to life through everything we hear, everything happens is coming from us, we hear very little. Only when we allow the other voices of life to move through us can we truly begin to hear. When we listen below our identity, below the self that we feel and see and name ourselves to be, below the constructs that we hold on to about who we believe ourselves to be, when we listen below that, we can allow life to correct us, to guide us in the space of not to. In this way, we free ourselves from the false sense of self that meets an ideal like, I never lose anything especially something as big as a truck, and I always know the way back. Those kinds of ideas. That's the dukkha of suffering that the Buddha taught us in the first noble truth. Listening to life is sometimes so hard for us because it comes in oppositional, not two waves. And we want it to look like this, not like that, when in fact it looks like both. That's the nature of life. And what happens when we learn to listen to life as both and, as not to, in its fullness? We see the miracle of finding that is astonishing we find the paradoxical balance of life. We encounter the miracle of connectedness. We lose a family member or friend and find other wonderful connections. We lose a job or profession, as I have several times, and find our way into work that is even more deeply satisfying when we hold the not to. We face a health crisis as I have, and we find courage and warm support. We wander into a converted church and find a practice and a community like you have here. And all of this losing and finding is made even more precious by anicca, the impermanence of life, the way things shift and change, the way our very being shifts and change and the way our heart can shift and change if we hold it as not to. 
instead of either or. Karen Schultz writes, no matter what goes missing, the wallet, or in her case, she lost her father as well, the lessons are the same. Disappearance reminds us to notice. Transience to cherish. Fragility to defend. Loss is a kind of external conscience urging us to make better use of our finite days. Our brief crossing in this life is best spent attending to all that we see, honoring what we find noble, denouncing what we cannot abide, recognizing that we are inseparably connected to all of it, even the parts that we don't like and can't abide, including what is not yet upon us, including what is already gone. This line, I think, is particularly beautiful. We are here to keep watch. I translate that to be mindful, not to keep. We are here to keep watch, not to keep. So now it seems to me that living life is one single act of continuously listening to life in all of its voices all around us. Nepo writes, coming out, another poem. While there is much to do, we are not here to do. Under the want to problem solve is the need to being solve. Often with full being, the problem goes away. The seed being solves its darkness by blossoming. The heart being solves its loneliness by loving whatever it meets. The tea being solves the water by becoming tea. Wandering the dark and twisting streets of Lac Anasi in the rain, I relearn these lessons about what we are here in this life to learn. The truth is that I forgot where our rental car was parked and that being human includes wandering strange rainy streets from time to time until we're ready to ask for help and listen to our wives. This is Mary Oliver, the poet, with her face in her hands. You want to cry aloud for your mistakes, but to tell the truth, the world doesn't need any more of that sound. So if you're going to do it and can't stop yourself, if your pretty mouth can't hold it in, at least go by yourself across the 40 fields and the 40 dark inclines of rocks and water to the place where the falls are flinging out their white sheets like crazy. And there is a cave behind all that jubilation and water fun, and you can stand there under it and roar all you want and nothing will be disturbed. You can drip with despair all afternoon and still, on a green branch, 
its wings just lightly touched by the passing foil of the water, the thrush, puffing out its spotted breast, will sing of the perfect stone-hard beauty of everything. Let's sit for a moment. to find balance in your heart and mind with everything in life. We've got a couple of minutes if anyone has a question or a comment. Yes, ma'am. You're quite welcome. It's my pleasure. Yes, ma'am. We'll see. (laughs) What would your response be to? the kind of loss that many of us experienced on November the 8th, 2016. It seems to be really coloring my life a lot right now. Indeed, and mine. You just heard my response. The whole thing? Yes, the whole thing. Any other comments or questions? Thank you so very much. It's wonderful to be here.